people can find ways to keep each other strong while being separate, and that is a big task. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Right now, with the specter of the coronavirus upending life as we know it, we'll be using this podcast as a way to try to shed light on how those of us working in the arts are coping. At the same time, we're also going to be looking at what lessons and what consolations art history has to offer for a world in disorienting flux. Today, however, we are going to try to pan out to capture the broader picture of how this unprecedented crisis is shaking the foundations of the art ecosystem writ large, specifically how it is impacting the places we go to see art, the places where we go to buy art, and on a fundamental level, art itself. To talk about this, I'm joined on the podcast today by Artnet Executive Editor Julia Halperin, who has been covering what the coronavirus means for art museums from the Met to the smallest nonprofit, Artnet Art Business Editor Tim Schneider, who will discuss the situation facing galleries today, and Artnet Chief Art Critic Ben Davis, who has written a moving meditation on how art can find its true purpose in these trying times. Since we're recording this episode over the internet from various remote locations, please bear with us as regards the sound quality. We'll start with Julia on museums. Thanks for coming on The Art Angle today, Julia. Thanks for having me. So where exactly are you recording this episode from? So I am uh, at my desk in my bedroom, uh, looking out over a rainy courtyard and a pile of books next to me. That sounds suitably bleak (laughs) 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 for the topic at hand. So the news, as everybody knows, has been filled with reports of art institutions the world over closing one after another as the governments are locking down cities and banning large gatherings. What is the picture like when it comes to the museum landscape right now based on the, the many calls you've had with museum directors and the like? Yeah, so I spent a lot of last week on the phone with museum directors who were, you know, calling me mostly from their home offices. And right now, you know, around three quarters of museums in the U.S. are closed and then cities all over the world have have shut down as well. So, you know, first, the big impact is just the closure. I spoke to museum directors who basically on a Thursday figured that they would have the weekend and the beginning of the following week to plan their closures and then overnight realized that they had to close right now. So just the logistics of having to figure out what your facilities people are going to do and how you're going to secure the museum before you close to the public, you know, with about 12 hours was a big deal. And then you have the fact that these shows that people have been planning for years and years and years are either closed to the public after like five days of being open or they're postponed for years upon end. And then also the fact that fundraising events like the Kitchen's annual gala and exhibition, which in this tragic state of affairs, they moved for the first time. They used to have two fundraising events split between the gala in the spring and an auction in the fall. And they like decided because they wanted to be kind of good art world Samaritans that they were going to get rid of the auction and turn it into an exhibition, which is sort of easier on the artists. And they were going to bundle them both in the spring. So that was their one big fundraising event of the year. And now they're both postponed for like six months. I just want to stop there for a second because you mentioned that three quarters of museums in the U.S. are closed. 
What about the other quarter? What is the breakdown? Is it geographic? I think it's mostly geographic. It's, you know, areas that are less densely populated that haven't had guidance from their city governments. And I think also a lot of museums really didn't want to do this until they had to, not only for the money, but because they really believe in themselves as this kind of refuge in difficult times. And they didn't want to give that up until someone told them that they needed to. It seems that there was a period where museums were looking for some kind of direction. And it seems that emerged when the Met decided that they were going to shut down. And and the Met has been really ahead of the field in terms of both the severity of its closure, in terms of how, how comprehensive it has been, and also in terms of the severity of their prediction for the field as a whole. Can you talk a little bit about what the Met decided to do and what they're doing right now? Yeah, I mean, the the Met's decisions were kind of a bombshell for the field, I think. Partially they had to because they had these potential and unconfirmed cases of coronavirus on staff, so they had to make faster decisions, but they got out ahead of the rest of New York's institutions and announced that they were going to close and then also came out before anyone else in giving a sort of final estimated date that they thought that they would be closed through July uh, and estimated that that would cause them to lose about $100 million. And I think that that revelation really kind of shocked and and terrified the museum industry, which was feeling like, okay, if that's what this is going to mean for the Met, then what is this going to mean for us? And, you know, in the meantime, the Met is also trying to put a good face on it. And they're really ramping up their online offerings and their uh, dedicated Met Kids site has traffic up by more than, you know, 800% last week. You know, they are really well positioned having the biggest digital staff, I think, of any museum in the country, if not the world, to provide services right now. But they're also being pretty bleak about what this means for them long-term in terms of layoffs and furloughs and budget cuts. And of course, the Met has one of the largest war chests of any American museum with a $3 billion endowment. So it's, it's particularly spooky that they're taking such drastic action and that they're expecting to lose $100 million. Can you explain how they predict that figure? Yes. So, you know, this is also kind of a, a wonky point, but a lot of the museum directors that I talked to were kind of grumbling about the fact that the Met was able to come up with these predictions so quickly because they just have a bigger and really expert financial staff. Like they actually just have the people on staff who can make these predictions sooner. So it's not even necessarily that the Met's predictions are graver relatively than other museums are going to have. They just were able to come up with it faster. But also the Met, like other museums in New York, relies on admission revenue for about 14% of its income. Uh, And then also when you add to that the money that they make at restaurants and at the store, these things really do add up. And so closing for a few months is a really big deal on their bottom line. And there's also the closing of the annual Met Gala, which is its very buzzy, starry, marquee event that raises huge amounts of money every year for the Costume Institute. Yeah, basically the entire budget for the Costume Institute. Wow. 
So you mentioned that the Met has really been lucky in having a robust digital arm to its operation. Can you talk a little bit about what they're doing digitally? Sure. So, I mean, they don't have to add a lot because they've already been doing so much. I mean, within two days of closing, I think you could go to their website and they've completely changed the front end of their website. So instead of advertising the shows that are at their different locations, it's all advertising Met Kids or the timeline of art history, which is their sort of comprehensive, interactive platform looking at art history through time. A lot of their collection has been digitized. They're trying to amp up things a little bit with talks about exhibitions from curators where we'll give them at home, but they don't need to do a lot to amp up what they're doing because they have been doing so much for so long. Speaking about the larger picture of the museum landscape, what have you heard is the expected outcome for your run-of-the-mill local art museum? So I think that you know, initially they're all sort of trying to put a brave face on it and talk about how they're going to redirect staff to work online. One of the plans that the kitchen has, which kind of delights me, is that they're considering commissioning artists to do performances from their actual kitchens. (laughs) But, you know, on the less heartwarming side, this is going to be really hard for a lot of museums. One estimate was that a third of museums in the U.S. were sort of operating close to the red before this crisis. And so, you know, being closed for up to two months means that there are going to be museums that do not reopen after this. They just don't have the money to sustain themselves without any revenue or event rental money coming in. What does it mean for a museum to close? I mean, we we see museums as these repositories of invaluable objects. How is it possible that a storehouse of such treasures can run out of money? I wondered this too. I was really surprised by the number that the Met cited, and I didn't quite understand how these places that have been kind of existing for so long would be living you know, as close to the museum equivalent of paycheck to paycheck as it seems like they are. I talked to someone who works at the National Center for Art Research, and they told me that the average museum has 13 months of cash reserves, so they can operate for that long without additional money coming in. But that number is skewed by a few really well-capitalized museums like the Met. If you take the median museum, that museum has only two months worth of cash reserves. So there are just a lot of museums out there that don't have a big enough endowment or enough money saved to operate without this sort of treadmill of money coming in. So are there any other ways that museums are evolving to adapt to this new reality of people not being able to go to their physical spaces, of people having to experience art remotely from home? You know, I think that it is going to be a real learning curve because the other thing that museums have been doing over the last five to 10 years is sort of making themselves into these public social spaces, these spaces that you go for a communal experience. And so it's going to be a big test to see if they can translate that effectively into the virtual world. And if you were to prognosticate, what lasting impact do you think this could have on museums? So the one that scared me the most that didn't even occur to me before I started talking to people for this story, but that a lot of museum people are worried about, is that people are 
no longer going to be as comfortable as they used to be in public space. Because we are practicing this social distancing and absorbing the fact that it is dangerous to be in close quarters with people, people may not be as comfortable being in a super crowded Met lobby or in a really small um, screening room in the corner of a gallery. And just the general comfort we have with being squeezed in next to people, which has you know helped museums a lot, is going to change. Can't museums just sell an artwork and get the money to bridge a month and then sell another artwork and keep alive that way? So that goes back to this age-old question of whether museums should be selling art in order to fund operations, which has been like one of the bugbears of the industry for a long time. And a lot of traditionalists and a lot of museum best practice organizations say that you can't do that, that art is given in the public trust. And therefore, if it's sold, it needs to be sold to acquire other artwork. I do wonder if we'll see some museums resort to selling art to fund operations if it's a question of life or death for them. If that happens, then we might see a lot of lawsuits and a lot of fighting it out in the courts and um, it could get really messy. But I would not be surprised at all if, if that was something that came to be. So that, of course depends on their ability to find a marketplace to sell these artworks in. So thank you very much for coming on the Art Angle today, Julia. I'm actually going to transition now to Tim to talk about what this means for galleries. So welcome on the show, Tim. Thanks for having me back, Andrew. So Art Basel was the first art fair to set a panic running through the art field when it decided to close its Hong Kong edition that was scheduled to take place this March. Instead, they decided they were going to host the first digital edition of Art Basel Hong Kong in the form of online viewing rooms. What is going on in the gallery sphere? What, what is happening to galleries that have depended on these art fairs that are closing left and right around the world and have depended on their physical gallery spaces to make sales that are now also being forced to close all over the world. Right. So before we really even get into that, we should zoom out to the biggest possible picture, which is this. Right now, the world is in the midst of a global crisis. And it's not strictly an economic crisis, but it is partially an economic crisis. And what happens in any economic crisis is that the first thing that dries up is what's called discretionary spending. And discretionary spending, for anybody who's not an econ nerd, just translates into spending on things that you don't need. And I'm somebody who deeply, deeply values art, but in a strict economic sense, it is not the type of thing that you need in a crisis. I mean, we are in a situation right now where people are price gouging each other on hand sanitizer. They're getting in fistfights over toilet paper. I've tried two consecutive grocery stores that have been out of rice like, this is just not a scenario where people are going, you know what, with what I have left in my bank account, I really want to get into a nice painting right now. It, it, it's just as far to the opposite end of the spectrum as people can possibly get. So that's one thing. And then once you start to drill into the fact that this isn't just an economic crisis, that it is a pandemic, then we start to get into the issues that you referred to earlier. So here in New York, just as in pretty much every major city in at least the Western world, non-essential businesses have been directed by the authorities to shut down. 
So you have a bunch of gallerists right now who are still on the hook to pay real estate for spaces where they sell art that they can't be inside of and they can't have people inside of. Then on top of that, you have the art fairs, which as you reference, every art fair of consequence this spring has at this point been canceled or postponed. So if you take away the places where dealers could sell art in person within their own spaces, and you take away the places where they could sell art elsewhere, suddenly they're in a really dire situation because the majority of the business has no venue right now. And so if it has no venue, then you start to get into these second order effects of, well, if you're not bringing in revenue, what do you have to start doing? You probably can't pay your staff after a certain point. You're not going out and hiring art shipping companies or even freelancers to come in and help you install a show or anything. So we very quickly just get into this situation where it just sets off this chain reaction that threatens to shut down the entire system. Hmm. It's interesting to note that there's been a debate for a couple of years now about the value of the physical brick and mortar gallery to the art trade, because there's been a trend of diminishing foot traffic in terms of people actually going to visit these these galleries. Instead, you've been going to go to art fairs where they can see all of these different galleries from all over the world in, in one day or half a day or a couple of hours. Do you think that this situation is going to accelerate that questioning of the value of the physical gallery? Well, it, it certainly has to, because... We're just in a situation right now where there aren't any other options. Now, if you look at the progression of galleries going online, this is something that has been developing incrementally over the course of the past 10, 15 years, depending on how you want to look at it, maybe even a little bit longer. But with the exception of the major, major galleries, the Gagosians, the David Werners, places like that, and then a set of smaller outlier operations. For the most part, most galleries basically just have nice websites that in some cases still aren't even really all that functional. And they have Instagram accounts now. But beyond that, it's just not a huge engagement that you see. And so now we've gone from the situation where we've had a decade or more of most galleries just dipping their toes in the water of online engagement. And suddenly they turn around today and the coronavirus has essentially set the entire beach on fire. <laughs> and these galleries now have nowhere else that they can go. They have to just dive into the water headfirst and swim like hell with whatever they have because there's no other option. So how is that working out? Have you been seeing people dive into the water in new ways? Well, yes and no. You referenced Art Basel, Hong Kong, Obviously, the physical fair was canceled. Now they've done these online viewing rooms, which are still up and running at the time of our conversation. And online viewing rooms are the default thing that galleries seem to be pivoting to. And, and that term is a little squishy. Like not all online viewing rooms are created equal. Essentially, at a baseline, all it means is that it's an online store. It doesn't even have to be a place where you can click and buy. And in most cases, it isn't. It's really just a website or like a micro site within a larger website where you have images of works that are on offer, like basic details about them. In a lot of cases, you'll have prices, which is nice. 
And then there will be a button or something that you can click and say, inquire about this artwork. And then through there, you can get to somebody at the gallery who you can have a conversation with and negotiate and do all those kinds of things. So I've gotten more emails about galleries opening online viewing rooms in the past two and a half, three weeks than I have probably gotten in the previous two or three years. Hmm. So I wrote a story recently about this entire phenomenon, and I spoke to, among other people, Jaja Fay, who just launched the art world's first digital media agency, basically, where she's consulting now on how galleries and artists and other presences should go online and be effective. And what she pointed to is what she referred to as the fallacy of if you build it, they will come. Just basically this idea of just because you create an online viewing room doesn't necessarily mean that your audience is going to gravitate towards it. Having an online presence isn't the same thing as online engagement. And online engagement is really what you need. Like you need to find a way to actually build an audience and cultivate an audience and maintain an audience. That comes to these questions of like, well, how do you build a community remotely? How do you do that in a digital space? And it comes down to things like, how are you using social media? Are you just putting up the same photos of your works that you would have otherwise done? Or are you trying to figure out some ways that you can maybe do some things differently with digital that you wouldn't be able to do in a typical PDF presentation? Are you even programming events? Like instead of doing in-person talks or panel discussions in your gallery? Are you setting up video conferences that people from around the world can dial into and see your gallery or your artist talking to a curator online? And there's just a lot of questions right now that are out there. And I think that people really need to hopefully approach them in a way that's going to be thinking past the obvious things. So on a basic level, what are the barriers of entry to opening an online viewing room. If all you want to do is create a pretty basic online storefront, essentially all you're doing is creating a website. And you can sign up to a place like Squarespace and pay 100 bucks a year or something around there to be able to have all the tools at your disposal that you need to build something that looks very professional. And it'll get the job done. Like that's... I think that the trick of the online viewing room phenomenon, again, because it's been led in the public eye, at least, by those major galleries like Agosian and Zwerner, I think that there's a misconception among the rank and file galleries that you have to have these kinds of blockbuster presences that are going to be expensive to produce. You can't do yourself, all that kind of stuff. When in reality, there are these existing DIY tools that are out there that are either free or low cost. And if you're willing to be a little creative and put a little time into it, then you can actually put something together that is at the very least pretty functional. And maybe it gets you 70%, 80% of the value of going out and hiring a web developer to build you a custom site. So how would you say this is going to shake out for the gallery sector over time? What lasting impact is this going to leave on the field? Well, it really depends. There's going to be a point somewhere down the line where things return to something resembling normal. We're going to be able to have art fairs again eventually. Galleries are going to be able to open up their physical spaces and have receptions and all that kind of stuff. The question that I have is, once those conditions return, how much of what people do now to evolve ends up sticking versus just snapping back into the old patterns? 
It's kind of like if you get back together with a problematic ex, you know that you shouldn't do it, but you've sort of tricked yourself into just remembering the good stuff and you've minimized like all the problems that got you out of the thing in the first place. So I don't totally know, but I think that there is the potential that this entire crisis could lead to a more nimble, more innovative gallery system that is willing to go beyond the physical experience and try more things to engage a larger audience in different ways. And if that happens, I think that that could actually be a really healthy thing. The problem is that there is, frankly speaking, going to be a lot of carnage along the way to get to that point. Are there any galleries that are standing out to you in terms of being particular bright spots right now when it comes to innovation? There are definitely people who are doing interesting things and have been doing interesting things for a while. Here in New York, there's a gallery called The Journal, which has this online space called Tennis Elbow, which basically runs flash sales. They run one-week exhibitions in the gallery, and concurrently with that, they have these one-week sales that they do strictly online. They have a membership program where people who are members can see the work a day earlier than the general public. And that has been running now since 2017. There's also another gallery in London called Unit. And from the beginning, they said, look, we're going to try to do things differently. We're going to try to operate outside of the traditional art market infrastructure. And so pretty much everything that they've done since they started the space in 2013 has been geared towards this idea of social media engagement and digital content and really building the rest of the program around that. So they've gone from being a pop-up space to now having a major space in Mayfair, which is the biggest gallery district in London. It's the same place where you have Zorner's, Gagosian's, stuff like that. And hopefully that's something that people can look to in this moment of crisis and say, okay, there is hope, there is optimism. One other positive thought on this is that when you talk about art galleries, the, the most important thing is actually the relationships with the artists and the collectors and the curators. And so if relationships become the coin for the realm and, and your social network and, and your ability to, to get a message out to the right people, the internet is a great place for that. Well, Tim, thanks very much uh, for coming on the show today. Why don't we transition from galleries, which sell art, museums, which show art, to art itself. We're joined here by Ben Davis, our national art critic. Ben, you recently wrote a really powerful essay titled How We Should Reimagine Art's Mission in the Time of Social Distancing. What are you seeing when you look out at the art landscape right now? Oh, well, thanks for having me on, Andrew. I, I wish it wasn't in the middle of a five-alarm fire. Artists, like people in general, I think, are still trying to figure out how to navigate what is an unfolding crisis, a public health crisis, political crisis, economic crisis. And I don't really think we'll know how art response to it or what it means for art for some time now, because we haven't seen the bottom of this thing. But I think the immediate reaction amongst creative people, arts workers, has been to 
respond to these various crises as citizens, as activists. One of the peculiarities of the art community is that it's a lot of precarious people, a lot of adjuncts, a lot of part-time workers, a lot of freelancers. So I think one of the first reactions has been to share resource lists for people who are close to the edge, to try and organize networks of mutual aid. I find that very hopeful. And then responding to the public health crisis, the mounting threat of the coronavirus. So those are activist responses. I think it were really a little bit in advance of the artistic response proper, because like everybody else, the, the immediate effect of the pandemic here in New York and elsewhere is to throw people into isolation. So the first reactions, you know, are are activist ones. And then after that, you're going to have agitational reactions. And then you're going to get works that, that are processing through things. But I think it's a little early to say. I mean, in Italy, for instance, there's a curator named uh, Giada Pellicari who's organized an Instagram art show called Artists in Quarantine that specifically features works of art by artists who are in quarantine zones of Italy I think that's a little in advance of where we are here in New York and the United States with artists trying to figure out how you process things, how you turn this moment into art, and then how you communicate that vision to others. So in this time of crisis, what would you say is the role of art right now? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, people are, are, are shut in and they're looking for entertainment. They're looking for diversion. And so there is just an obvious role to play of art or art broadly conceived, cultural consumption of keeping people entertained, diverted, keeping the kids occupied, keeping your mind off of what's going on outside. However, my argument is that that can be very isolating, that we live in a society where people already overconsume through mediated devices, you know, the average American spends about half of their waking life on various forms of screens. In this very difficult time, if we're stuck in a situation where we're just consuming passively culture, that's going to amplify senses of, of depression and alienation. That's going to make it um, harder to sustain through what is going to be a very difficult time. You've explored countless museums all over the world. You've also spent a lot of time traversing the the virtual versions of museums that you can find through Google. What's your take on these virtual museum experiences? I think that the problem with them has always been that in the balance of forces between art and technology, the technology always kind of has the upper hand. And the technologists just think about the art as assets to be manipulated in virtual space. And when we think about the value of going to to a museum, it's it's not just seeing it, you know, it's the social process of being there. It's just the, the experience of, of, of being at a, at a museum and being in touch with a sense of history and a specific place. That's why the, the tourist activity when you go to different cities is going to a museum because the idea of art is still very tied to the idea of a specific place. For me, a lot of these virtual experiences fall into this gray area where they neither do something online that has to be done online, nor are they really capturing this specific sense of being there or, or even coming close. So you get a kind of a, a thing that neither stands on its own, nor is it a good substitute for the um, thing itself. And, you know, people always talk about the art world and the art community. And the thing that is 
very noticeable. When you go to these virtual museum experiences, the museums are totally empty. I mean, that's my point, is that those same tools that, that connect people also can be very alienated, make people feel very disconnected. And uh, again, we're going into a period of isolation, you know, figuring out how we use these tools in ways that make you feel connected to other people rather than disconnected is very important. That's a very important artistic, cultural task for right now. Are there any bright spots that are giving you hope either in the art field or in other areas of the cultural field? Well, I think it's probably too soon to look for uh, bright spots exactly. It seems a little bit trite, but there were these images of Italians who were in quarantine going out on the balcony and singing together for a moment. You know, this was a little viral thing just 10 days ago or something like that. And, you know, it just really got me thinking people are going to find ways to be together. It doesn't necessarily have to be virtual ways, you know, but people can find ways to keep each other strong while being separate. And that is a big task. I, I can't think of anything else like it, but it makes clear to me a certain kind of purpose that art has. And that gives me hope because if you believe in art, if you believe it's important, it does serve as social glue, as something that helps us stay together, that gives us a sense of common purpose. And, you know, I think it's having a sense of purpose in our actions, in what we write and what we do, that's going to get us through this very difficult, trying and scary period. Now, there's an old expression that goes, ars longa vita brevis, that art is long and, and life is brief. And of course, art has been created since time immemorial, has persisted through cataclysm after cataclysm and war after war. Do you think that this thing that we're going through is going to have a lasting impact on art? Well, of course it will. We can't say what that will be now. We, you, you have to look the moment straight in the face. And history will judge us on how reacted and responded to this. But, you know, I mean, America didn't really have an art scene before the Great Depression. A lot of people argue that it was the sense of coming together that came out of the Great Depression that gave us an American art scene in the first place. You know, in lots of really unpredictable ways, the social movements of the 1960s created the foundation for what we call contemporary art. You know, the AIDS crisis in the 1980s produced a tremendous amount of carnage, but also produced some of the most moving, what are in retrospect, some of the most moving and important artworks of that time period. If you think of David Vonarovich or Felix Gonzalez Torres or Robert Gober, I think that's, for me, pretty cold comfort because we got to get people through this. Right now, people are organizing to keep each other whole, to respond politically, to help out first responders, to help people grieve and help people with their rage. We're not thinking about the art history textbooks right now, and that's probably the way it should be. This is obviously a, a giant topic that we're going to be returning to on the podcast again and again from various angles. And I 
imagine that we're also going to be doing some episodes on things entirely unrelated to the crisis so we can get a little bit of relief from this yep. oppressive kind of nothing, yeah, of I got nothing against distraction. I, I think <laughs> I think we're gonna need plenty of that, and we're gonna need to find ways to be there for each other and uh, to build community well apart. Well, speaking of community, thanks for coming on the show, Ben. Thank you, Julia and Tim. That's it for this week's episode of the Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.